This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 16 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And uh, Max is stuck on an away mission to downtown Chicago and he couldn't make it back. He's been hijacked by Tellarites. There you go. There you go. This week we are continuing our, our series on William Shatner as an actor playing himself with part three of the series, looking at the second movie in the Shatnerverse, as we're calling it, Festival in Cannes. Now, Festival in Cannes is a movie which was shot during the 1999 Cannes Film Festival. Uh, It was directed by, I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name, Henry Yaglon? I I have no idea. I really don't. J-A-G-L-O-M. If anybody knows, please let us know. Yeah. Um, He is a director who's made a lot of um, movies, which I haven't seen. Have you seen any of them? Nope. This is the only one. Deja Vu, uh, some other things. Not the the one with Denzel Washington, but uh, he's done a few. He's done like 20 movies or something like that. Now, this movie, it, it didn't come out until 2002. Um, here in the States, at least, came out March 8th, 2002, which is significant in that it's one week before the third movie in the Shatnerverse. So we got two Shatnerverse movies back-to-back in 2002, March of 2002. But this was the first one, and it takes place in 1999, and it's an interesting movie. That's a very polite way to put it. That's a really polite way to describe this movie. Now, can you uh, maybe give sort of a synopsis of of this movie? Yeah. It's uh, take American Graffiti, make it pretentious, set it in the Cannes Film Festival, and have a bunch of ad-libbed scenes with uh, a mix of some cameos. And that's your movie, pretty much. And then at the end, it tries to wrap it all together by having the two characters who are supposedly falling in love having some sort of epiphany about men and women and love and all of that jazz. Yeah, you know, the the thing that I kept on thinking about while watching it was this really feels like a Robert Altman movie in terms of style. Yes, I'll I'll say in terms of style. I've never been the world's biggest Robert Altman fan, but everything that I've seen that he's done is better than this. I I would agree with that, and and I am one of the world's biggest Robert Altman fans. Well, there you go. We found found a mutual point of agreement right there. That's awesome. (laughs) This This is very similar in a lot of ways to The Player. I don't know if you ever saw that one. Yes, and that's one of the Altman movies that I really, really, truly enjoy. Yeah, it's one of the best movies ever made. And it has Greta Skaki in it, who also appears in this movie. Ah, yes. as As an uh, actress who wants to get into directing. And the basic plot of this is basically 
she has an idea for a very low-budget indie movie, which mm-hmm. would star a 60-something woman. And a quote-unquote producer stumbles across her, a financer, a, a guy who puts packages together, and he says, I want to make your movie, even though I have no idea what it's about. But I want it to star this woman, who is a, a woman who is having a... a a retrospective at the festival. She's a, she's a very established actress, but she's, you know, past her prime, and she has trouble getting roles. And, you know, the, the two of them meet and kind of um, fall in love with each other in, a, in, a, in terms of, like, mutual respect and in terms of, like, a working relationship. However, there's also a problem with a big studio head, or not studio head, but studio producer, who's trying to package together a Tom Hanks movie. And one of the pieces which which he needs is this woman, because if this woman is not in his Tom Hanks movie, then the young female lead will not be in it. And if the young female lead is not in it, then Tom Hanks will not be in it. And if Tom Hanks is not in it, then the studio won't fund it. So she's the, the, the final piece of the puzzle. So now this woman needs to choose between doing a small, meaningless role in a Tom Hanks movie, which would pay her a lot of money, or a meaningful role in a very small movie, which would pay her nothing. Yeah, that, yes, okay, that is one of the plot lines, and it, but it's, wow, like, honestly, even sticking with it, this movie is so dis, disjointed um, that, like, even following that plot line is just, I, I mean, I gotta be honest with you that like it, it, initially um, I really thought you had punked me with this because I was waiting. I, it, William Shatner, you know, to borrow a line from Millhouse Van Houten, I wanted to know when we were going to get to the cracker factory because the, the entire rest of the movie is just this ambling. Yes, there's that. But then like the guy who's, trying to produce the actress who wants to direct movie is actually not a financier and it's all smoke and mirrors and I I get that a lot of the movie is sort of like a pondering on you know some inside baseball about how movie creation and funding works and everything like that and there there's some real effort by like Ron Silver you know yeah. he he was always good for a you know a nice solid performance and I, I, I get the sense that everybody was trying, but there's there's so little cohesion to the movie. Like, it's really just, I mean, I you know, I, I get that some people like that style, but this is, this movie was really everything that, that I heard people sort of like trash Tree of Life about, which I loved. Everything they said about that, I would apply to this movie. Well, you know, it's kind of weird. Like, you, you hear about uh, Robert Altman's process you know and and it's very interesting because you look at the commentary for the player which is on the dvd and it's robert altman and basically the whole two hours he's saying things like um you know i don't really do anything once i cast the movie 95 percent of my job is done then i just stick a camera in a corner and let the actors do whatever they want and you hear that and you're like, wow, that's really interesting. And he's so like accepting of other people's ideas and everything. And, you know, it's really just his job to sort of put all the pieces in place and see what happens. And, you know, that's, I think, kind of the philosophy which was taken with this movie. 
the thing about it is, if you listen to the old Laserdisc commentary for The Player, in which Robert Altman describes uh, the making of the movie very shortly after actually making the movie, you can see that it's extremely well thought out. And every little piece is a piece of a puzzle, which when you put them all together, adds up to this masterpiece of a movie. And that is missing from Festival in Cannes. Yes. Yes, it is. I feel like in Festival in Cannes, they had a bare-bones script, and they said, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this scene here where these people need to do this. And they're doing it in that style where it's like we're at the Cannes Film Festival. We're surrounded by movie stars and industry players. You know, We've got Maximilian Schell, who knows everyone. We'll have yeah. him go up to a random person like Faye Dunaway and say, hey, um, I'm shooting a movie in which I'm playing a character who's very similar to myself. Uh, what if I just come up to you and we have a conversation and here's the scene and then we'll play it out as if we're, it's actually happening now. And then Faye Dunaway is like, oh, okay, sure, yeah. let's do that. And then they which do is, it. Which is always the best environment to try to get somebody's improv skills you know, coming into play is to, you know, ambush them at a party or yeah. a presser event or something right. like that. Right, exactly, yeah. And the end result is very, very sloppy. There are numerous times where it just feels like in this dialogue they're trying to, like, course correct for people who don't even know what course they're on, you know? Yes, yes, that's a great way to put it. That is like a terrific with... way to put it, yeah. <laughs> The scene with Faye Dunaway, for example, you know, it's like, you know, she's like, oh, this is, you know, she's she's introducing Maximilian Schell's character to her her sons. And she's like, this guy is a very famous director. And he's like, well, I'm not that famous. Yeah. You know, oh, well, he, but he's a very good director. Oh, well, thank you. He's made a lot of movies. Oh, well, I haven't made that many movies. And it's like. She doesn't know the character. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Right. You would you know? think that you would think that there would be some sort of uh, uh, courtesy to be like, well, he, he, give her some sort of, like you said, some sort of structure to work with. I mean, it's like curb your enthusiasm. There's a lot of improv on that show, but it's very clearly broken out. They know what is supposed to happen and who each person is in those scenes. Right. And uh, yeah, th- that is completely missing from this movie. I mean, there's the whole thing, you know, going back to Altman, because it really does feel like an Altman movie. And going, going back to Altman, you know, there's that, that infamous story about, you know, this, when they were shooting Nashville. And it, right before they started shooting, he gathered up the whole cast and crew, apparently. They all just smoked a lot of pot, because that's all they did on the set of Nashville. And he's, he, he gathered them all in a room, and he's like, have you all read the script? And they all said, yep we have and he's like great throw it away you know and but the thing about that is he asked them ahead of time have you read the script and they all said yes so they knew where they were going they knew the trajectory yes and that improv and everything was still you know whereas here you're trying to capture that feel but from people who don't know again like we were saying where they're going and it's just it's it's a recipe for disaster you know? Yes, a yeah, a disaster of, of of quite an epic scale. It really is. <laughs> that being said, I think I liked it more than you did. I I'm 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 picking up that vibe myself. I really <laughs> do think that um, I was less than pleased with the the time spent. I you know, it, 
like I said, I, I, I liked Tree of Life, which got me pretty much banned from any film conversation with certain friends for about six months. They wouldn't even look at me. But this is this is one of those ones where I, I just I try to come at everything with a very positive spin. And the only positive spin I can give is that at one point in the movie, I went, hey, Bill Shatner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Tree of Life, like I don't particularly like that movie but at the same time i feel like i'm missing something i mean there's a lot of like you know people going like dad dad why are you why are you a tree of life what does that mean the life of the you know and then there's the part with the dinosaurs which granted anytime you put dinosaurs in a movie I mean, it's an inst- it's an instant boost of two stars you've at yeah. least got a two-star movie if you have dinosaurs in it Right. That's that's the law, I think. Yeah. And like yeah. the photography is great and everything and I don't know. I want to go back and study it some more because the editors guild put that on their list of like the 50 best edited movies of all time or whatever. But at the same time I don't think it works too well. But I can see that there's something going on in it. I can see that there's like an intention behind it. There's right. a certain professionalism. I mean, the thing that kept on bothering me about this movie was the sound editing. Like it kept oh, on like yes. they were like little gaps and stuff. I yes. kept on thinking like if I edited like this show like that, <laughs> Chris would be like, this is unacceptable. We can't broadcast this. Yeah. And they had like three years to work on it, right? Because it didn't come out until 2002. Yeah. I mean, if they shot it in 99, maybe it sat on a shelf for a really long time. Yeah, I think it did. I think it did. But And still, with good reason. I guess so. But with all that being said, I, I actually did enjoy the movie a bit. You know, I think it falls apart as it progresses, but I like the setup. And maybe it's just because I haven't been to the Cannes Film Festival, but I really like sort of that portrayal of it, that sort of fly-on-the-wall um, sense of, like, it's a big party, and there's yeah. all this crazy stuff going on. And, you know, you always hear things. You know, like I always remember reading Roger Ebert's, uh, you know, articles, not just his reviews, but his sort of articles about the experience of the festival, mm-hmm. how he would always stay at this one hotel and he would always eat his croissant while watching the sun rise over some ocean or something. I don't know what it was, <laughs> you know. And and I'm just like, oh, man, that sounds so cool. Like, I want to do that. And another part of it is, you know, and that's something which this movie really gets into is really sort of the 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 marketing behind it and the the push for for money and for distribution and everything. Yeah. And one of the things that you kind of see as, as a motif, which is just plastered throughout the, the, the city is the advertising for all the big movies, which are coming out. And that was a wonderful, actually part of the film for me, because 1999, that that's back when John still roamed the world free. I I wasn't married. (laughs) I didn't have kids, and I went around, and I was able to watch this movie go, saw it, hated it, liked it, liked it, hated it, liked it. And I was like, I saw all of those movies. Right. What's happened? I mean, hey, you know, on on our other show, Off Topic, you know, Max and I, along with Brandon, just went through 1999 week by week for an entire year, you know? Yeah. So I was like, every single one of those movies, I'm like, yeah, that that exact same thing, you know? I even remember that that was like the first year that, you know, I was really sort of following film intently, and uh, I I remember hearing about the Cannes Film Festival, and I remember 
uh, you know, they, there was that big thing for entrapment, you know, the big yeah. entrapment billboard. <laughs> with the that little was, cut out Catherine Zeta-Jones with the right. fake uh, lasers, yeah. With the lasers, yeah. yeah. And like that, that movie's like, <laughs> I, I, I feel like my life is intertwined with that movie <laughs> because that was the first movie I ever, sh- you know, showed as a projectionist and everything. But um, that was the opening night film at the festival, which is like, what? You know, and, and I remember... Was? Yeah, and I remember thinking, wow. like, that's so weird. Why? And the reason is because, and they, like they explained it, like the president of the festival was like, we always uh, pick a big blockbuster to open the festival because we want to remind people that these are just movies. Which is why, like, Shrek the hmm. Third opened up the festival one year and, like, all this other crap. Interesting. Very strange. Yeah, yeah. That's really, really interesting. I didn't know that. Huh. <laughs> But that doesn't really have much to do with festival and can. Otherwise, it has uh, enough to do with. I would rather talk about that than this movie, to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, the thing about festival and can is like that stuff is interesting and the kind of setup and everything, kind of seeing how they're trying to feel their way through it. And I do like the conundrum which is presented in that main storyline. Well, the 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 real development of the conundrum coincides with Ron Silver's appearance, and yeah. you know, God rest his soul, like he. He always brought it. He was great. It, you know, it, like that old line that people used to dust off about Gene Hackman. Oh, he's great in anything. Yeah. But Ron Silver really was like he he had that polish and he was he had a, a very long uh, live theater career. Like you could tell that his, you know, on stage skills really paid off in his scenes because a lot of the more film focused actors had the more obvious trouble with the improv and keeping things in line, whereas he could steer those scenes. And when he was in it, he he really controlled what was happening in front of the camera. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. It's like, it, it feels like there's a better movie in there somewhere. It's just poorly directed. It's poorly acted because the actors are directed poorly. Maybe it's poorly directed because the editor doesn't know what he's doing. I don't know. But it's a big mess. Yeah. I, I, w- I would almost be interested in seeing one of this guy's other movies just so I can see if this was a fluke mm-hmm. or if this was his preferred style. Like, I, I want to see how much of this was circumstantial problems and how much of it was this is just how all of his movies are. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the reason why we watch this movie is because... William Shatner is in it in one of those Faye Dunaway-like cameos. Uh, there's a scene where Maximilian Schell is at a party and he sees William Shatner and he's like, hey! And the two of them uh, obviously kind of like know each other and are are, are remembering each other from, from the past, you know? Like they, they're old friends who haven't seen each other in a long time. And they're hugging and they're they're making jokes about how like they're being photographed by you know a gazillion people, and they're each trying to um, get the other one upstage so that they're in the photograph, you know, right. and and everything, and and you know they just they're just kind of like catching up on old times, and then after that scene plays out, you see Maximilian Shell with this look on his face that he has a lot throughout the movie where I don't really know whether or not he was acting, but he just kind of has this smile 
but this like terror it's more like a terrified grin yeah. where he's like what the hell am i doing here i don't <laughs> understand what's going on this is freaking me out and he's walking away with like his girlfriend he's walking away from the party with that look on his face and his girlfriend's like why are you leaving the party's over there and he's like i know and she's like well then why are you walking over here and he's like i i don't really like these things too much and then he turns to her and he says who who is that man that i was just <laughs> hugging and she says that was william shatner and he's like who and she says you know star trek and he's like no 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 i know star trek i just didn't remember him you know and yeah, that's the is, end of it yeah it's hilarious <laughs> it is it, it it is pretty funny and yeah i i don't know uh, how much of that was a natural reaction on his part either um, because it it was very believably played it's it's weird because the two of them did act together um many many years before in judgment at nuremberg they they both appeared in that movie and so this was a reunion of sorts uh you know how many years uh later it was uh, you know 30 38 years later well yeah. you you know the shell is no no stranger to science fiction, starring in the uh, classic Disney film The Black Hole. So, uh, oh, yeah. maybe Shatner was simply a really, really big fan of that movie, and was just overjoyed to see him. That's quite possible. Shell has, you know, obviously he's got a, a big connection to everything. But I mean, you know, he was in uh, Deep Impact and uh, John Carpenter's Vampires, which I know is one of your favorite movies. Um, you talked me off that ledge. Don't hold a grudge, man. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's, 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 a, it's kind of a, a cool scene because, well, I mean, I guess here's my question. What do you think of Shatner's performance in that scene? It's I, interesting. It's very interesting because I, I don't think that it qualifies as a true performance. I think that it is public persona Bill Shatner which you can argue is a performance but it's not the it's not the oh i'm in front of a camera performance it's the uh i'm out in public and this is who i need to be in front of people perform you know like that sort of veneer is it's the image of bill shatner as opposed to the bill shatner who might sit at home and watch television in his sweats or something like that right i mean we were talking about this um on the other side of the track is that a thing it is now. All right, cool. Where um, I don't think that he knew he was being filmed from in this way in in a movie, right? And it was probably it. It feels like it plays out like Maximilian Shell was sent in there to just you know whatever. It's like there's William Shatner, go get him, you know. And he got him. And then afterwards, they were like, "Okay, look, here's the thing. If you look over there, we were running a camera." And uh, I'm shooting this movie. Would you mind signing off on it so that you can, you know, we can incorporate the footage into the the movie? But while he was in that scene, I really get the impression that he had absolutely no idea that he was in a movie. And because of that, we're not getting the typical William Shatner performance as himself. Right. We're getting just William Shatner's self in a sense you know yeah, his his public face yeah if 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 he knew 
what was going on. And he was like given a script and said, okay, here's the scene. You meet this guy, whatever. You're playing yourself. I think he would have had a different performance. He would have played to the persona which he created in Free Enterprise, in a sense. And I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think he also would have faced the camera a little bit more. Yeah, because probably. Mr. Shatner is extremely aware of where cameras are usually. Uh, and, as is demonstrated is by the scene at play where they're both trying to get each other upstage. He's yep. like, let's hug and have this personal moment, but let's do it for the cameras, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very strange. Yeah, I, I do. I do wonder, though, because how far away the camera is in that scene, uh, whether like uh, Maximilian Shell was like wearing a wire or something like that, because it's actually oh, yeah. pretty good audio in that scene. Yeah, he had to have been. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like this movie, in terms of like the, the dialogue recording, it sounds a lot like Robert Altman movie sound. And I think the reason for that is because they were all using wireless mics, you know, and, and that yeah. has like a certain quality to it. Yeah. You know, it's not super clean. There's a lot of background noise lots of times. And yeah, that you know, but that's cool. Now, how does this movie fit into the Shatnerverse? I'm, di- I'm actually I'm dying to hear this one because I, I want to know how you see this fitting in there. It's interesting in that performance wise, you can't say really like, oh, look, you can see some of the trademarks in his performance which is signaling that it's the same character. It's kind of the opposite of that. You can kind of, like we were saying, you see his real self here. However, you can kind of follow the storyline of Free Enterprise into this movie in a very direct way. The way that I see it. Now, first off, a little bit of backstory here. The reason why William Shatner was at the festival that year was because he was promoting Free Enterprise. That's the reason why he was there. That's the reason why he was at that event. And if you look closely, just to the to the right of him, you can see both Mark Altman and Robert Meyer Burnett, the two creators of Free Enterprise, there with hats on, which I'm assuming say Free Enterprise. So so there is that, that natural connection, whether or not it's an in-universe connection. However, I say that it is an in-universe connection. I say that what happens in the Shatnerverse is Free Enterprise plays out and, you know, over the the end credits, there's the whole thing where they're shooting the movie that you just watched. They're shooting Free Enterprise. Yes. Okay. My theory here is that in Festival in Cannes, this takes place shortly after that movie was shot and William Shatner, along with Rob and Mark, the characters from Free Enterprise mm-hmm. are taking the movie that they were shooting to Cannes. So he's promoting that movie after shooting it. Ah, so, interesting so tie-in. Okay. Free Enterprise happens. Okay. They shoot the movie. Yeah. And then after that, they take that movie to Cannes. Now, it's a bit of a stretch because we're seeing Robert Meyer Burnett and Mark... Altman, we're not seeing Rafer Weigel and Eric McCormick. Right. But the way that I justify that is, you know, they recast them. Right. Hey, you know what? If I'm willing to uh, make peace with Katie Holmes being replaced by Maggie Gyllenhaal, why not? 
Yeah, right. it can work. Robert Meyer Burnett, in addition to being the John Favreau of the Shatner Cinematic Universe, is also the Don Cheadle of the Shatner Cinematic Universe. <laughs> okay, I like that. I like that very much. It's It actually makes a lot more sense than I fixated on the fact that there was a guy in a Star Trek uniform in the crowd. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, Starfleet had sent somebody back in time to ensure the success of Shatner selling free enterprise and it had to happen at this specific event, but I like your explanation better. Okay. All right. So that, that to me totally works. I think that's, that's a thing. I, you know, I'll give you a lot of points for creativity and, uh, because of that, like that, that's such an A plus for effort. I now subscribe to it. I I like your thinking. It really works. Excellent. We'll have to see whether or not the other movies, uh, further down the line actually, uh, follow up on that. But, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. We shall see. So uh, any final thoughts on Festival in Cannes? Uh, at this point, I think everybody has figured out what I thought of the movie. Um, if you have a chance to see it, just fast forward to the Shatner scene so that you can say you saw the Shatner scene and just just go past it. I, I don't. I really don't think that there's anything... Like, if you're up, if you're suffering from a bout of insomnia and it's like 2.30 in the morning and you happen across it on IFC or something like that, you keep going. <laughs> the thing is that William Shatner scene is in the, is in the trailer. You know, that's how I knew about it. Like, <laughs> I, I remember seeing the trailer and there's a whole thing where, you know, they're like, who, where he's, he says, who was that? And it's like, you know, intercut where you can hear basically the dialogue from him saying like, who was that? while it's playing over the shot of Shatner talking to him. And she yeah. says, that's William Shatner. And he says, who, you know, and like, that's, that's the little moment that they put in the trailer where I was like, Oh my God, there's William Shatner in a movie playing himself. Is this technically like even back then, back in 2002, I was like, is this a sequel to free enterprise? I think it might be. I think I need to watch this. And obviously that was the same time that Showtime was coming out, you know, and everything like that, which we'll talk yeah. about next week. And uh, it was exciting times for the for the Shatner as himself movies. But I didn't actually see it until after it had come out on video because it got a very small release. And I watched it specifically because of that one scene in the trailer, which was basically the exact same scene in the movie and it is my favorite scene in the movie however i still think that it is a decent movie i think i liked it a lot more back then because i was kind of into sort of the industry side of it all more at that point in time mm -hmm. now i'm kind of over that but at the same time i think it is kind of an interesting scenario it just doesn't have an ending and it's very very poorly made I, I think, uh, based on your comments, I think that you just need to watch it one or two more times to arrive at my conclusion about it. So I'm sort of like a, uh, a I'm a future you. I, I'm just I'm two I'm two viewings of this down the road for you. You're you're. It's quite possible that you're right, and chances <laughs> are I will never see this movie again unless one day I decide like I need to see the entire Shatner cinematic universe in one epic sitting <laughs> right. that would really be the only reason why i would watch this movie again you just do a giant marathon mm -hmm. you have a six-pack of mountain dew next to you maybe some cheetos and this would still be the bathroom break movie yeah it wouldn't be yeah. the first time i did that by the way <laughs> i mean maybe for this particular thing but no yeah 
I can yeah. totally see myself doing that at some point. <laughs> You're my hero. <laughs> it's like you you gotta. I mean, I don't know. Like that, you know, people are like, "Oh yeah, I'm, 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 I might see two movies in a row tomorrow." You know, I might actually watch. And to me, it's like, I mean, well, for example, yesterday I went to day one of the Best Picture Showcase, watched four movies in the theater, came home, and then I'm like, oh, I guess I need to watch Festival in Cannes. <laughs> and then I woke up in the morning and went to see Armageddon. You know, I mean, that's just, I mean, movies are, it's just a thing. It's just oh, a yeah. thing which you do, right? I yeah. Mean, no, I, I, uh, I, my own personal best in terms of uh, a marathon was watching all six uh, Star Wars movies in a row. Um, that's pretty awesome. Uh, it They fail, like, it, it's, that's a long time to just sit there watching things. Did you go um, to Celebration 4? No. Okay. No, I went, see I, again one, two, to, to, to the the aforementioned, uh, you know, looking at all the pictures that were being advertised at the Cannes Film Festival in 1999, you know, pre-marriage, pre-kids, all of that stuff. Well, look at all those movies I saw. I saw I went to the first three Star Wars celebrations um, and then had kids and haven't gone since. Yeah, that's it's the a, way it works. It's it's particular heartbreak for me. We'll see. But now. Now that they're all probably going to be in Anaheim, it could be like, who wants to go to Disneyland, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's 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 a, a tough few years sell. down the line for maybe maybe episode nine. You know, bring it back to Orlando, man. Don't make me fly out to California. I yeah, flying. I agree with that. But you know, yeah, that's yeah. kind of yeah. But anyway. anyway. Um, <laughs> Yes, yes. Movie marathons are awesome, and I would totally do a, a Shatnerverse marathon. Awesome opportunity. All right. Well, it's been fun talking about festival in Cannes, but that's not the only thing we're talking about this week on Trek FM. So here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. I really, really, really hope that if they do that they make Chang the villain because, you know, Captain Chang instead of General Chang or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? I mm-hmm. mean, that just seems like the perfect way to go. Earl Grey. All right, Riker, we're promoting you to captain. I mean, you uh, you killed the last captain. We usually don't reward that. That's usually not a policy, but in this case... Well, well to be fair, he had spent some time on a Klingon ship. The Orb. But the Federation and Bator as a member of the Federation would be helping rebuild Cardassia. And I could see like very much the relationship between the U.S. and Japan today. I could see the Federation and Cardassia having that kind of relationship moving forward. To the journey! Julie has a very distinct pain noise. Yeah, she kind of does. You know what I'm talking about? It sounds sort of like she's suffocating. Yeah, it sounds like she's suffocating and sometimes, and I'm going to keep it clean, not always in pain. The Ready Room. He is the best cosplayer ever because he's so buried himself in his part that we have no idea who this guy is outside of the impersonation of Tuvok. Exactly. He's the Christian Bale of the Delta Quadrant. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. If I'm not mistaken, in any upcoming episode of Next Generation, we don't see full-grown golden retrievers running around the decks of the Enterprise. And I'm also a little worried that Captain Picard has never played with puppies. Commentary, Trek stars. But you'd rather see Red in charge than him. 
Oh, yeah, totally. Right. Because you really want porn stash to go down. Yes, yes, you do. And that sentence out of context sounds really strange. Literary treks. As great as Picard is and his Picard maneuver, uh, I don't think Picard straightening his shirt is going to help him uh, <laughs> when he's going up against the Riker maneuver. Fair enough, so. yeah. Axanar, the official podcast. The change that we've made, the change to the nacelles and uh, several other aspects of these ships to make them distinct and, and not the same ships as uh, in, in Star Trek 2009. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows to get in on the daily Trek talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, the Windows podcast directory for Xbox and Zune, or you can stream them from the website. Just go to Trek.fm. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary, Trek stars, to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week, from classics to current bestsellers and even some of the most famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive and Federation. Audible has something for everyone. It even has, up till now, the autobiography of William Shatner, which is written by William Shatner and David Fisher and narrated by William Shatner. And it's 10 hours and 45 minutes long, unabridged. It says here on Audible, This is the story of William Shatner's half-century career and private life. It will take listeners from the streets of Montreal to regional theater and describe his early TV work and movies. It also includes stories from four series he starred in, including T.J. Hooker, Rescue 911, Boston Legal, and, of course, Star Trek. So really, what this means is, if you look at kind of like what they're doing with uh, the Star Wars universe now and the expanded universe and yeah. the idea of like all of the books and everything being canon now, this is kind of that. This is expanded Shatnerverse. You know, it does <laughs> take place in free enterprise continuity. It's just, you know, in book form. And you can get this book for free since you listen to commentary Trek Stars. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've yet to read and that latest novel from your favorite author as well, William Shatner. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm and we thank you for supporting commentary Trek Stars and Trek FM. And lastly, there's one more way that you can directly help us, and that's by donating to us on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash trekfm, and you'll see what that's all about. It's kind of like a monthly Kickstarter uh, where there's various um, rewards and and, uh, and perks and uh, credits are available and everything, you know, even if you can only donate like a dollar a month, we would still greatly appreciate it. And it would help us keep the network up and running and uh, keep on bringing great discussions about great movies like Festival in Cannes. By the way, I haven't uh, done the research on this, but I, I would guess that we are the only Star Trek podcast 
in the history of Star Trek podcasts to dedicate an entire episode to Festival in Cannes. Uh, you know, I think that that is worthy of note because I think that we might be the only two people to have rented it through iTunes in probably <laughs> 10 years. That's quite possible in seeing as how it wasn't up on iTunes 10 years ago. Probably the only people ever to rent it. <laughs> I didn't see very many user reviews, so I I sure offered mine. <laughs> you did? Did you oh, put yes. something up there? Oh, yes, I did. Oh, great. Go I on to... to iTunes if you want. You don't even have to rent it. You'll see my, my review sitting up there. Excellent. I'll have to check that out. And while you're there, leave us a review. Because why not, right? It helps us out. It helps people find the show who may not have found it otherwise. And, uh, yeah, you know, everyone wins. Yeah. All right. Well, John, where can people find you other than iTunes? Twitter, at Kessel Junkie, and on a weekly show called Words with Nerds that my buddy Craig and I do, and we just uh, tore each other apart about mixtapes. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Are you pro mixtape or? It's a lost art, man. And I, 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 I feel that I was particularly gifted at it, but our... Craig's philosophies on mixtapes were markedly different than mine. It was, it was an interesting have, journey. I have mixed feelings about mixtapes. Um, I never really got a chance to do it. I kind of missed that window of opportunity. But I have a... Uh, see, my version of mixtapes, I think, I like the idea of programming double features. That's now, my see, thing. But see, and that's valid because that is that is in and of itself an art form. You need to know it's like a wine pairing. You need to know what goes together. So that's yeah. completely valid. Yeah, I'll have to give that a listen for sure. <laughs> uh, you can find me right here on Trek FM doing Standard Orbit with Drew every week, where we talk about the original series. You can also find me along with uh, Max and Brandon on CommentaryTrackStars.com where we do uh, a show called Off Topic, where we talk about whatever we want to talk about, which usually ends up being whatever happens to be going on in the Marvel Cinematic Universe news-wise that week, or what's <laughs> going on with Star Wars or whatever. Um, so go check that out as well. Um, this week, in, in the last episode that, that was up, or maybe the episode before that, Brandon and I uh, recast Pulp Fiction. Oh, why not? That's that's definitely worth that's definitely worth a listen. Yeah, you know, yeah. like what if it were made today? Who would be in it? You know, yeah. that kind of thing. Some interesting choices. So yeah, so check that out. You can also find me on Twitter at mumbles3k, or you can find the show on Twitter at comtrackstars, or you can email us at comtrackstars at gmail .com. All right. Well, I guess that's it for festival in Cannes. We will be back next week to discuss the third movie in the Shatnerverse, which is Showtime. Showtime.